I want to take you this morning to 1 John chapter 4. The passage that I want to look at this morning is, is always the passage that I go to the first time that I'm invited to speak at a church where I don't know anybody, I don't, or don't know most people anyway. Um, and I, um, so there's no preconceptions about what, what I may be addressing at that particular church that's leading me to this. I do this every time um, when I'm asked to speak at a church for the first time and I'm not asked to speak on a particular issue or a particular topic. Um, a couple reasons for that. Number one is in case I don't get asked back the second time. Um, but there's a more important reason, and that is this, that uh, the churches that are in the orbit of churches that I fellowship with and that I work with and minister with, the church that I pastored in New York and, and churches that I've worked with through the, uh, the years of my ministry are generally not going to be churches that are going to be waylaid or sideswiped by doctrinal error. I don't say that to make us presumptuous in any way that we could never be sidelined by doctrinal error. But as far as all, all the fads of liberalism and the emergent and all the other stuff that you see going on, it's not my impression that churches in our uh, orbit of churches are generally going to be attracted by those kinds of things. The danger for us, if there is a danger, and there always is a danger, of, of being sidetracked away from from God's intent for us. The danger for us, I believe, is going to be on the opposite extreme. If I could mention a passage that we won't be looking at this morning, but I think is very germane to what we will be talking about this morning, is the first, uh, uh, the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2, which is the first of seven letters that Jesus dictated to the churches of Asia Minor. The first one being Ephesus. Now that's significant for what we'll talk about this morning because the same man whom God had dictate those letters to those seven churches is the one who writes the words that we're going to be looking at here in 1 John chapter 4. And not only that, the Apostle John was associated with the church at Ephesus for the last 30 or so years of his life. So you can imagine that the Apostle John would be very interested and hearing what Jesus would say to his church. John is in exile at Patmos during the time that he writes the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 2, he begins by saying, I know your works, and he commends them for their works, their labor, their patience, their endurance, and even, and particularly because he mentions it twice, their commitment to sound doctrine. Positively, he says they have tested those who claim to be apostles. Negatively, he says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about who the Nicolaitans were except they were some kind of false teachers. So this was a church that was active. This was a church that was, that was, uh, that was persevering. They were enduring. And they were sound in their theology, which positively meant they were proclaiming it, which negatively meant they were distancing themselves or they were avoiding anything that was contrary 
to false teaching. And yet Jesus, with His piercing eyes, looks at that church and He says, I have against you because you've abandoned your first love. It's interesting that the word there that's used in... We, we, people talk about a church losing its first love or an individual losing their first love for Christ. But that's not precisely the terminology that's used in Revelation 2.4. They left it. It's the same word that's used for the disciples leaving their nets to follow Jesus. Why did they leave their nets? Because following Jesus was more important than fishing. Why did the church at Ephesus leave their first love? Because evidently something had become more important than love. Maybe it was all those things that they'd been commended for. Sometimes the good can become the enemy of the best. The greatest thing. And I firmly believe, and this is, this is a passage that the Lord laid on my heart about the time that I first met Pastor Rod. 25 years ago. Because this issue, this issue I think is the number one danger that faces Christ-exaltering, truth-honoring, Bible-believing churches. It isn't going to be false teaching, although that's always a danger we, always, we, we will have to wrestle with and we'll have to face. It's going to be not ortho or heterodoxy or hetero, uh, heterotheology, her, heretical theology. It's going to be heretical lack of love. And this is why I want us to look at this passage this morning. For some of us, Hopefully for most of us in this room, including myself, hopefully this will be a reminder of what we already know to be true. And if it is, this is something, hold on to, my brothers and sisters. But this may be something that God will use to prick our hearts to remind us, even as Paul prayed, to the prayed regarding the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, I know that you love, but I'm praying that you would excel in your love even more you're already commendable in the way that you're loving one another but i want it to be even greater because love romans 13 8 through 10 love is that one command that can never be exhaustively fulfilled it's always always perennially relevant so first john chapter 4 verses 7 through 11 are the passage that we're going to be focusing in on most of the time uh in the five or six brief hours that I have with you today. We'll be spending on verses 7 and 8, but we're going to be looking at all five of these verses. Verse 7, 1 John chapter 4. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I don't want to retranslate for you because uh, the first part of verse 8 because there's an interesting but significant interplay between the Greek tenses that are used in the first part of verse 8. So I want to give you a little bit of an expanded translation to catch the force of what John is saying in verse 8. We'll come back to this when we get to that part of our, our time this morning. John says in verse 8, "...the one who does not 
habitually practice love, does not now know, nor did he ever know, God. Because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God. And again, in case I run out of time later, let me go ahead and make this point now. When it comes to understanding and defining love, we can't start with ourselves. We can't start with humanity, especially fallen humanity. If we're going to understand love, there's only one place to start, and that's with God. It's not that we love God. In fact, the opposite was the case. We hated Him. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 19 of the same chapter, John says, we love because He first loved us. So verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Jesus, thank You for Your Word. And so I ask now for Your help. Help me to be a blessing to Your people here. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. In the years before, uh, in the, years before the Communists took over mainland China, under Mao Zedong, that's that which would have been 1949, the years immediately preceding that, the country of China, the nation of China, was ruled over by a man by the name of Chiang Kai-shek. Throughout most of Chiang Kai-shek's rule in China, uh, the, uh, his, most of his rule was characterized by a brutal treatment of Christians. Which was interesting because Chiang Kai-shek's wife was a Christian. I don't know if that was a commentary on their marriage or anything else. But one day, Chiang Kai-shek approached his wife and said, Dear, I don't understand these Christians. We have persecuted them. We have taken away their jobs. In some cases, we put them into prison. In other cases, we've even put some of them to death. And yet, I've never seen them retaliate against their persecutors. Instead, whenever they can render a service for China, they do so in gladly. What is there that's different about them? And Chiang Kai-shek's wife looked him square in the eye and she said, they do that because they are Christians. Because the love of God has been perfected in them. In fact, she actually referenced the verse that we didn't read this morning, but is right after the context that we did read. Verse 12 of 1 John 4. The love of God is perfected in them. The love of God had been put on display before them. And it was that testimony coupled with his wife's words that made Chiang Kai-shek himself bow the knee and trust in Jesus Christ for his own salvation. Because love has always been the hallmark of Christianity before the watching and searching eyes of a lost and dying world. Wasn't it Jesus Himself who said in John 13.35 that it's by this that all men shall know that you are My disciples if you have proper doctrine? The world is, now I'm, I'm going to be the last one in the world to minimize proper doctrine. 
But the point is the world doesn't have the equipment to determine whether doctrine is proper or not. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love. One to another. Something the world can observe that's true of believers. That's the one universal hallmark characteristic of believers. Perhaps no biblical writer understood this particular dynamic more than the Apostle John himself. And this little epistle of 1 John, which is barely over 100 verses long, the word love appears 51 times, roughly once every two verses in this epistle. So it's not surprising that given what Jesus said in John 13.35 and, and the stress that this passage, this is, by the way, the third major passage within 1 John that even deals with this issue. John has already addressed this in chapter 2, verses 7-11. through 11, And then again in 3, 11-18. And then this is the beginning of the lengthiest discussion in 1 John. It's going to go all the way through verse 21. We're just looking at the first five verses of that this morning. In fact, Rod told me in an email that you, guys, that you folks are working through the Gospel of John. Um, as, so this is in some ways a companion to what you're already doing on Sunday mornings with, with Pastor Rod, which is very much an encouragement to me. So maybe you can answer me this. What, what is the nickname that, of the Apostle John that has come down to us through church history? What is he typically regarded as? Pardon? Okay, let me, let me save that because that, that one comes actually from the Gospel of John. There's another name that he's known for. Pardon? The Revelator? Okay, yeah, in the, in the book of Revelation? The Apostle of Love? Did someone say that? Okay, oh well. See, Ariel is more exegetically correct because she picked up on something in the Gospel. She said that the disciple whom Jesus loved because that is the name by which John refers to himself. He never refers to himself by name in his Gospel, but he always describes himself by that expression. In church history, he has, come, he has become known as the Apostle of Love. But whether it's that designation or the one that he refers to himself in the Apostle of John, that wasn't his original nickname. So what really surprises me is not that John would have such an emphasis on love. What really I find surprising is the one whom God used to give us this great emphasis on love because John didn't come by this naturally. Anybody remember the other nickname John had? I'll give you a clue. It's not in John's Gospel. I don't think it is anyway. Pardon? No, not specifically. Son of Thunder, right? Let me just give you one passage where this occurs, uh, or at least uh, the illustration of this occurs. Luke 9, 51-56. In the old King James, it comes across as Boanerges, which means son of thunder. And, uh, I mean, this, uh, this indicated that John had a temper you know, that was about as short as a mosquito's hiccup. He would fly off the handle at anything. 
And you have an example of this in Luke 9, 51-56, where Jesus and his disciples are, um, are walking through Samaria. In fact, it's uh, interesting because in Luke's Gospel, it's, it's right about there that Luke begins something like a 10-chapter discussion on Jesus' Samaritan ministry. The other Gospel writers don't even talk about it. Luke gives almost half of his Gospel to Jesus' ministry among the Samaritans. And you remember what the relationship was like between Jews and Samaritans, right? You guys have been through John 4, right? With the woman at the well of Samaria. And there's this little side comment that John makes in John chapter 4, almost parenthetically, where he says, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's what you would call an understatement. There was bad blood. You talk about racial tension, that was, that was the first century equivalent of racial tensions that we ex- experience today in some ways, but this was even beyond in some ways what it, um, what it is these days. There was absolute animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so here in, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus and His disciples are walking through Samaria And they come up to a city and the Samaritans don't receive Jesus. And so John steps into his, uh, at that point, his favorite role as advisor to deity. And he says to Jesus, Do you want us, like Elijah did, see if you can tie in a biblical figure to this, it makes it biblical, right? You want us, like Elijah did, to call down fire from heaven and nuke these guys. Canham's revised paraphrase. Now, don't, you know, we can be a little too hard on the Apostle John at this point because haven't you ever been tempted to pray that way? You know, people are hassling you or you're being persecuted or, or, or ragged on because you're a Christian and don't you want to pray something like, God, would you just... Uh, Give them lockjaw and nausea at the same time so they really know who's in control here? You might not be that creative in your prayer, but you got the same idea, you know. That's what I would be doing. Give them lockjaw and nausea so they know who's in control. (laughs) And here's John. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And what's Jesus say? John, you have no idea what you're talking about. There's a little bit of a textual difference in verse 56 of Luke 9, but some manuscripts read this, what is elsewhere explicitly stated in Luke's Gospel, that the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Or to borrow words from Luke 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, the Gospel. So here John John the Apostle is writing these words in 1 John 4 that we're reading about 60 or so years later from that event that's recorded in Luke chapter 9. And here is a man who has been transformed by the Gospel. By nature, he was the son of thunder. But he had been exposed to Jesus and his, his repeated examples of Jesus' love. The ultimate display of which was 
Jesus' sacrifice in Calvary, which John can't get away from because that's going to be when he goes back, when he's talking about defining love and giving us an example of what it really is, verses 9 and 10 of this chapter, he's going to point to the cross as the ultimate demonstration of what true love looks like. He can't get away from the cross. For John, this is what transformed him from being the son of thunder to the way that he describes himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. Not to say that he loved John better than the other disciples, which is how some people wrongly take that expression. John uses that expression to describe himself because he's overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus loves him. And so so now this man, 60 years later, takes up his pen as one who's been transformed by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he writes the words that we have have just read here. So what I want to talk about this morning in the time that we have together is around three main divisions of this passage. Number one, the priority of love. This is verses 7 and 8. Why is love important? Why is this this one dynamic, this one issue, so important that Jesus will basically say, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, you have loved one another. John gives us three reasons in verses 7 and 8. Number two, the picture of love. What does love look like? We can talk about love all we want, but if we have the wrong conception about what love is, we're going to end up with a skewed application of what John's talking about here. So it's very important that we're not just talking about love, undefined, vague, and even worse, with the wrong definition of love. So John's going to give us a picture of what it looks like in verses 9 and 10. And After we know why it's important, 7 and 8, and what it looks like, verses 9 and 10, then you have the practice of love in verse 11, which is the application. What are you going to do with it? So the priority, the picture, and the practice of love. Um, We had read for us earlier here uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And this is a passage that we could go to that stresses the priority of love as we begin looking at this first point. I mean, you have Paul in that particular chapter, Paul writing about 40 years earlier or so, when 35, 40 years earlier, somewhere in that neighborhood when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Paul is making the same point about the priority of love. And he opens this chapter that he writes to a church that is pretty excited about the fact that it has all the gifts. And Paul says to that church, he picks up on about five of those gifts, and he says, though I have the gift of prophecy, I have the gift of knowledge, though I can even speak with the tongues of angels, and have all faith so that I can remove mountains. And then he, he has, I don't know if you picked this up, he has a couple different ways of saying, if I have not love, in one verse he says, I have I am, rather, without love, I am what? Nothing. That's an accounting term. It basically means you added me up and you got zero. Now, zero is better than negative, at least. You know, if you have all your credits in one column and all your debits in another column and you end up with a zero at the bottom line, at least you're not in debt. 
You don't have anything on the credit side either, but at least you're not in debt. But the other expression that, John, uh, that Paul uses when he says, I'm become as what? I'm become as a... Again, I did all my memorizing on a King James here, so I'll have to go with that. Um, clanging, uh, clashing gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, can you imagine what it would be like if we decided we're just going to fire the worship team for a day and I'm going to bring my own buddy with me who's going to give us special music for 45 minutes and he's going to bring in a trash can lid with a stick and he's going to beat on it. You know, for, 20, for 45 minutes. And he might vary up the tempo a little bit and maybe uh, be loud and be soft and so on and so forth. But he bang, 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 bang for 45 minutes. Now, if any of you are still here, you will be seriously contemplating breaking several of the Ten Commandments all at once. Because somebody who would do that to you is not only not edifying, he's positively what? Well, at the very least, he's positively irritating, which is not a neutral. That's actually a negative. So what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is <clears throat> that you can have all the gifts, you can exercise those gifts, you can exercise those gifts eloquently, powerfully. And yet if you have not love, that ends up as a net negative. It would be better if you didn't have the gifts at all than if you have them and exercise them without love. That's why in some cases, the worst kind of false teaching is truth that is communicated lovelessly. It would be almost better to not communicate truth or at least let somebody who's qualified in their love to communicate it and you just remain silent. Again, I don't, again please don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not saying that truth and love here are incompatible or in any way that you can't, you know, if you're going to be loving, you can't communicate truth. Far from the, op uh, uh, to the contrary, Paul talks about in Ephesians 4.15 that we are to speak the truth in love. But the two have to be kept together or the absence of one undermines the other. That's the point. If you have love without truth, you don't have love. But if you have truth without love, you don't have truth either. Both of them end up becoming, both, either one without the other becomes an aberration, a caricature of God himself. And so you have Paul working through that great chapter, giving all those characteristics of love, and then he comes to the end of it. Amazing statement. And now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. A couple years ago, I sat in on a, a course, audited a class taught by D.A. Carson on the Epistles of John. And he made a very, he was referencing this passage in connection with that class, and he made a very interesting statement. Why is love the greatest in 1 Corinthians 13? I mean, faith and hope are very important too, right? Why would, why would Paul single out love as the greatest. Well, before that point, I'd always said love is the greatest because it's the, it's the only one that goes into eternity. You know, faith and hope 
you know, faith, we're, look, you know, we're trusting in God. Hope, we're looking ahead to the future. But when the future happens and we're with God, you know, those things stop, but love never fails. It continues into eternity. But Carson made this point. He said of the three, love is the only one that God exercises. Which I think is right to the point. It's the only one of the three that God exercises. So why is love a priority? Let me give you three reasons in this, these first two verses in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, first one is in the first part of verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Very simply, number one, love is a priority because of God's command. You have verse 7 opening with this statement, let us love one another. Now you would think that anything that God commands once would hold authority enough for us that we would live by it, but are you aware that this command appears no less than 15 times in the New Testament? Five of them are in 1 John itself. But John isn't the only one who gives this command. Paul does. Peter does. Let uh, 1 Peter 1.22 see that you love one another fervently from the heart. Barnabas, or whoever wrote Hebrews, does. In Hebrews 13, when he says, let brotherly love continue. James does when he calls love the royal law in James chapter 2 and verse 8. So it's not just that you have one guy in the New Testament stating the command 15 different ways. You have those 15 different commands spread out over a number of different people. And of course, the preeminent example of this is Jesus Christ Himself. On one case he stated, another case he asked someone else to state, but in both cases it was the same. What is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is a priority. The vertical always takes priority over the horizontal, but you can't have one without the other. In fact, John's going to say later on in this same chapter that the person who says that he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. Any questions? You know, John's is very, very explicit about this. So love is a priority because of God's command. Number two, and this is where I want to settle down for a few minutes, although my few minutes are rapidly vanishing away, but I'm just getting warmed up is love is a priority because of our conversion. Number one, because of God's command, but number two, because of our conversion. Now, John is going to put this in, a, in two ways, and he does this a lot in his epistle. He, he does this a lot in his gospel. You probably, uh, Pastor Rods, I'm sure, talked about a number of times the contrasts that John likes to use in his writings where he'll put he'll state the same thing both negatively and then state the same thing over again but put it positively you have the same thing here you have the positive statement in verse 7 whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and then you have the same statement stated negatively in the first part of verse 8 the one who doesn't love never knew God and there's a very significant interchange with the tenses but John here has stated twice that the presence of love, biblical love, 
demonstrates the presence of the new birth, verse 7, but the absence of love, verse 8, demonstrates the absence of the new birth, verse 8. In other words, this is an absolutely non-negotiable part of uh, or evidence of our conversion. Some of you are familiar with Francis Schaeffer, who um, was for years involved in what we would broadly call apologetics. Apologetics not saying you're sorry for being a Christian. Apologetics, as, as the term designates, is pre- it presents a reason, evidence, for believing what you believe as Christians. And Francis Schaeffer's entire life and ministry was devoted to this. He was most well known for founding the Brie over in Switzerland, which was a ministry that was primarily uh, targeted toward seeking to reach the intelligentsia, the academic community in Switzerland, to show the reasonableness of Christianity from a presuppositional vantage point that started with the assumption that the Bible is the Word of God. But toward the end of his life, Francis Schaeffer wrote a significant little book. It's only, you take you an hour to read it, if that, if you can get through it without getting convicted. But it was based on two verses. He called it the Mark of the Christian. And he wrote it based on two verses. One of them is the verse that we already referenced in John chapter 13 and verse 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. And he made the comment, I'm going to paraphrase it at this point, but Francis Schaeffer said that that verse gives the non-believing world the right to determine whether we are believers based on whether they observe love amongst us. But what's even more chilling is the second verse that Schaeffer built the book on. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer before that he prays just before his crucifixion. He prays five times in that prayer. It's the only one of his requests in that prayer that he gives for his followers that he repeats, and this one is repeated five times. He prays that they may be one as we are. In other words, that there might be a unity that's expressive of the unity that exists even amongst the members of the Godhead. So we're not talking about some kind of ecumaniac, monolithic type of unity, but a true, genuine, spiritual unity that, that, that stems out of a relationship with God that's common to the people who enter into that, that union. But in John 17, 21-23, he gives the reason, reasons for this. That they may be one as we are in order that the world may believe that God had sent Christ. Stop and think about that one for a moment. In order that the world may believe Some people say Jesus didn't pray for the world in John 17. He didn't in verse 9, but he did in verse 21. Because there's only one prayer request in John, in John 17 that is appropriate for the world, and that is what? That they might believe. But that they might believe what? That God had sent Christ. What is that? The Gospel. That's the Gospel. So Francis Schaeffer's comment was, if the world does not observe 
does not see observable love among believers, not only will they conclude that our profession is false, John 13.35, but they will also conclude that our gospel is false. Because the very thing we are proclaiming will be undermined by our lack of love. And Francis Schaeffer's point in that book, and this brings us back to the, the point I want to make here, he says, and here's a man who devoted his life to apologetics. He said, when it comes right down to it, it doesn't matter whether you have all the fancy arguments that you can answer every possible objection that's been raised against Christianity. When it comes right down to it, observable love among believers, is, and these are his words, the final apologetic for Christianity. That's what will draw people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have it, what is there that's different? We've simply traded one worldview for another worldview, but the worldview that we've accepted now that's supposed to be a life-transforming worldview hasn't made any difference in our lives. We may have all the outward activities in place, we may have all the outward actions in place, but the whole vibrancy that comes with new birth is absent. It is, as a preacher I once heard said, uh, in a different context, but I want to apply it to this one, he said, a body without a head is dead. Now it seems pretty obvious until you start to see exceptions. Or what appear to be exceptions to this. Now, how many, of you, how many of you guys are native to this area? Okay, how many of you grew up in, in, in a rural area and then moved here? Anybody? Okay, a few, a few people. I grew up in upstate New York, about 10 miles from the middle of nowhere. I mean, a small town. In fact, we, I didn't even live in the town, but the town had, you know, you are now entering and you are now leaving on the same signpost, one of those things. You know? You know, whenever somebody plugged in the raz a razor, a traffic light would dim, except we didn't have a traffic light. Um, I would say that I came from a redneck church. You know, you know, definition of a redneck church. You got 500 people and seven last names in the church directory. <laughs> but, but we didn't have 500 people in my church. It was much smaller than that. But, I, but we grew up on about 72 acres outside of a little town, about 200 people. Um, Middlesex, New York, and uh, four kids, and we raised chickens. People who grew up in cities sometimes re don't realize that when they go to the supermarket, grocery store, to get, you know, a chicken all wrapped up, that the chicken doesn't grow up looking like that. <laughs> you know, it doesn't grow up neatly plastic wrapped and so there's a certain amount of violence uh, that has to take place to get the chicken in that condition and I stand here as a self-confessed purveyor of the violence maybe I shouldn't say this in a state that a couple years ago had a referendum of that we were supposed to vote on giving chicken uh, food breaks and rest breaks but I think the statute of limitations on this has run out because this is a while ago now um, plus, it was in another state. But we raise chickens, and I'm here to tell you that second only to woodchucks, chickens are the dumbest 
animal on the face of the earth. They're morons. And when you got chickens that are morons and four kids that are bored out of their gourd with nothing else to do, you have a recipe for a lot of interesting situations to come up. So we would sneak down in the middle of the night. We had these chickens all in a chicken coop. And when these chickens were asleep, they, <laughs> they wouldn't move. And so our goal, we would sneak into the chicken coop. They're on, this, the, the bottom, you know, they're on several different roosts. Um, so the ones that were on the bottom, we would sneak in there, and we would take the ones off the second roost, and we would just start stacking them on top of the ones that were on the bottom. And our goal was to see how far up we could get before the ones on the bottom would start to wake up. So chink, 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 chink. Then we would, we would get about five rows. The fifth, we would be starting on the fifth row, which meant the bottom chicken there had three chickens on its back by that point, but was still fast asleep and just starting to rock. Because, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable. It doesn't know that it's got three chickens on its back now, so it's just gained about four times the amount of weight in about three minutes. So it's starting to... And, of course, the second row is even funnier now because the second row is starting to wake up because the second row's got two chickens on its back and one below it that is starting to move around. So this second chicken's doing this kind of a thing. And then the third row are starting to really dance around and you got a nice chicken fight going by the time you get to that fourth and that fifth rower so <laughs> and you're thinking the chickens were morons okay yeah but but the day came when we had to butcher the chickens and I won't go into all the bloody gory details except that my job was to carry the chickens up and my dad had a, a stump piece of wood with two nails and the chicken head would go between the two nails and my dad did the work and my job was to chase the chicken so you know the head came off and that chicken for the next two or three minutes was more active than it had ever been in its full life I mean, the head was there, but the chicken's running off into the bushes. So I'm, I'm going, grabbing the chicken back, standing it up, and it's running off again. You know, and, and to the untrained observer, he'd be looking at a chicken and say, that's a live chicken. Remember, a body without a head is what? It's dead. The chicken was too stupid to know it was dead. And isn't that true, tragically true, in a lot of our churches where we just do an awful lot of activity to prove to the rest of the world we're not really dead? It's almost the Mary and Martha syndrome that Jesus confronted in Luke chapter 10 where, where Mary's doing all, or Martha rather, is doing all the right things, doing all the good things, but she's left the better thing. She's not sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's like Jesus and Peter. In John 21, when Jesus is restoring Peter, and Jesus says to Peter three times, Peter, do you what? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. But notice in each case, the question came 
for Peter to affirm his love for because he had just three times denied Jesus. So now Jesus in his great mercy and grace gives Peter three opportunities to affirm his love for Christ. But notice the love always comes before feeding the sheep. The activity, the actions, the works accompany love and they grow out of love. They do not replace love or constitute love. Because so many of the things that we look to as marks of Christianity are possible to do apart from a motivation for love. But not and be good works in the, in the biblical sense of that word. So John here, in this passage, is talking about a body, a group of people that demonstrate by their love that they have truly been regenerated. That they have been truly given a new nature. The one who loves knows God. It's a proof of the new birth. The absence of love demonstrates an absence of the new birth. And this is where I said in verse 8, there's an interchange here. Verse 8 says, the one who does not habitually practice love. It's a present tense verb in the first part of verse 8. Uh, and without going into all the grammatical details, the importance of that indicate John is not talking about a sinless perfectionism type of love here. Because again, if that's what he meant, then you wouldn't have Paul praying in other passages that a believer's who are already practicing love, wouldn't be excelling in it even more. Love is something that we, will, uh, that we will never perfectly be able to practice this side of eternity. So somebody who's looking for sinless perfection when it comes to the exercise of love, that's not the point John is making. But the point he is making here is that love is to be a regular, habitual practice of the life of the believer. And the one who doesn't love, and then he switches tenses here to what in Greek is called the aorist tense, doesn't know God. Let me give you another passage. Matthew 7. You're familiar with this one probably. Where Jesus ends His Sermon on the, on the Mount by saying that not everyone who says unto Me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into My kingdom. For many will come before Me in that day and say, Lord, haven't we done? And they'll give this great list of things that they had done in His name, and then Jesus is going to look at them, verse 23, and say what? I never knew... Depart from Me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Same verb, same tense that's used here in 1 John 4.8. The one who doesn't love... It isn't just saying that they knew God once and don't know Him now. John says they never knew Him. And we need to let the force of these words just sink in a little bit. Because one of the things that has distressed me about some forms of conservative, Bible-believing Christianity is how often love is downplayed or undermined in some of those circles. In fact, at the very time that I first knew your pastor, Rod, I was working on uh, studying this particular passage for a sermon, we had to we had to um, we had to enter a sermon contest when I was in college. Don't even get me on what I think about sermon contests. That's you talk about a tangent. You won't get me back off of that. will be one of them. So I'm I'm not even talking about the legitimacy of it at the time. I felt 
We had to do it, so I might as well do something on what I think needs to be addressed. And I remember talking with several young men at the time who would ask me, what are you preaching on, Canem? And I told them, I'm preaching on love one another. And one of them actually looked at me and snorted. He said, what do you want to preach on that for? That just leads to compromise. Another friend of mine, who I was talking to at the same time, who was an older town student, he was uh, in his early 30s at the time, I was just barely out of my teens, but he was... um, He had gotten saved in his mid-twenties and went to a church somewhere in the Midwest that had a screamer pastor. And I'm not going to try to imitate his screaming for you because I want to keep my voice. But in the midst of that sermon, the pastor, uh, one of his sermons, and they all tended to be this way, but the one sermon he said was, we don't want to be known as a loving church in this community. That stuff is for sissies and for wimps. That was the pastor's comment. This was in a supposedly fundamental Bible-believing church. And to my friend's credit, he soon left that church and went to one where the pastor was a Christian. I remember making that statement at the time, and people, how do you know he wasn't a Christian? Because John says he's not a Christian. There is no one, and I'm, I'm, I'm as dogmatic, bulldogmatic about this, as I was 25 years ago, there is no one who can be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and be transformed by it that could ever make such a moronic statement. The one who does not love, and especially who is going to minimize and ridicule it, does not know God. Now, and never has. This is why love is a hallmark. And to the extent that fundamentalism or that kind of fundamentalism has lost its love or even even worse, abandoned it intentionally, to that extent it's become a false anti-Christ religion because it is preaching in many ways a false gospel. Don't miss the context of 1 John 4, 7-11. John has just finished warning about false teachers in verses 1-6. through And he ends that warning in verse 6 by saying, He that is of God hears us. He that is not of God does not hear us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, etc. There's a connection that one of the worst kinds of false teaching is the claim to preach truth, but divorced from love. A gospel without love is no gospel at all. And the reason for that is given in the third reason why love is a priority. Number one, because of God's command. Number two, because of our conversion. But number three, very simply, because of God's character. John says, for God is love. This is the third God is statement that you have in this particular And in John's writing, John 4.24, God is spirit, and they who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And here, not once but twice in chapter 4, God is love. God is love. You have a fourth one coming up in chapter 5, God is life. But what John is saying here is love is more than a mere attribute of God. It is the very character. It is the very nature. It is the very essence of God. 
And that's why John can say that the one who doesn't love doesn't know God because God by His very character is love. Even the things that God does that we attribute to His justice, and this is one of the mysteries of God, things that we attribute to His holiness, even those things are done out of His love. Because everything God does, it is done by a loving God even when God has to exercise judgment. He does so out of love. It is the very nature, it is the very essence of God. And you have dozens and dozens and dozens of passage on, passages on this, even in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord of old, Jeremiah says, has appeared unto me saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Malachi 1 opens with Malachi speaking God's Word back to the people and reminds them, I have loved you, says the Lord. And they question it. How have you loved us? And then Malachi, before he even gets into the rest of his prophecy, gives the three evidences there in verses 2-6 through six of God's unchanging love. In, his past, in, in your past, Israel, because He chose you. In your present, because He's preserved you. In the future, because He's going to send the Messiah. God's love is utterly, completely unchanging. Great book to recommend if you can find it. It's been out of print, but Leon Morris wrote a book about 30 years ago, I think it was now, called Testaments of Love, in which he explores the fact that God's love is even more prominently on display in the Old Testament than it is the New Testament. Liberals like to talk about the God of the Old Testament being an ogre who just likes to wipe people out, and the New Testament being a God of love, which by them means he doesn't do anything against sin. Both are Warped Pictures of God. Leon Morris wrote this book to try to correct that misapprehension and shows, among other things, that the God of the Old Testament is even more demonstrating His love. I'll have to save for some other time my D.L. Moody story of how he was transformed by coming to this realization and interest. of. I do want to say something about the last two parts of this. So I want to switch to verses 7 and 8 or I'm sorry, 9 and 10. We talked about the priority of love, that love is a priority because of God's command, because of our conversion and God's character. But it's vitally important that we understand what the Bible means when we talk about love. What is love? How you define love? Well, you have lots of different definitions that have been given out there about love. Um, you know, uh, usually most definitions have sooner or later come back to the romantic dimension of love. But so often that aspect of love, while that's a very real aspect of it, a very real application of it, doesn't, isn't always unending. It's like the GI that I read about during World War II who... Um, was faithful to this girl back home that he was going to get married, and his buddies were utterly amazed that this guy would never even look at another girl, and then one day he gets the John Deere letter. She was a farmer. Let's see if any of you are still with me. Dear John letter, yeah. Um, so anyway, so she's re he's reading this letter, and the letter says, Dear so-and-so, uh, I'm getting married to another guy, and would you please send my picture? And this guy was devastated, and his buddies were angry. 
because they knew how faithful he had been. So all his buddies got together, and they all pulled pictures of their sisters, their grandmothers, anyone they could find, and they all threw them into this big crate and shipped it across the sea with one note from the GI at the top of the crate. So this gal back home opens up the crate, and, and the note at the top says, Dear so-and-so, I uh, got your letter, and uh, the uh, sad thing is I don't remember which picture is yours. So uh, if you could look through all these and find yours and send the rest back, I'd really appreciate it. So much for true love, right? You know, we, we have this idea of the romantic aspect of love. And especially when you put to it with the world's idea that love is something that you can fall in and out of, that you can have for a person one moment and not have the next moment. This is why it's very important that when we talk about love, that we don't start with those kind of definitions. We have to start with God himself. And there are a number of different ways that we could go about defining love. We could go back to 1 Corinthians 13, the passage that we read this morning, where Paul gives something like 18 characteristics in that chapter, what love looks like. In fact, even Paul will have to define it by using descriptions of it. This is what it looks like. So we could do it that way. I want to do something a little different this morning, which I find a very fascinating way to go about this. I want to do what's called the first mention principle of Bible study, which is, um, which is, a, which a, which is a principle that says that the first time that a word occurs in the Bible, the context in which it appears often tells us something about the way that word is going to be used in the rest of the Bible. It doesn't work every time but it works enough times that it's a very significant when it does occur. And if that's true, what I find fascinating is the first time that the word love is used in the Bible, it does not speak of a man's love for a woman or a woman's love for a man. In fact, it doesn't even speak of a man's love for God. The first time the word love appears in the Bible, it speaks of a father's love for his son. In Genesis 22, when God appears from, speaks to Abraham from heaven, and he says in verse 2 of that chapter, Abraham, take your son, interestingly, your only begotten son, Abraham, uh, Isaac, whom you love. And go to Moriah and offer him there upon a mountain that I will tell you of. And you know the context of what happens in that particular chapter. Two things. Number one, it speaks of a father's great love for his son. But number two, it also speaks of that father's love for someone that was so great that he was what? Willing to sacrifice the son. Right? That's what happens. And of course you know, Abraham is all ready to sacrifice his own son when God, at the last second, intervenes from heaven to stop Abraham from doing so. Now, a couple reasons why this passage is significant. John 8 and Hebrews 11 both point back to this event as having significance in pointing ahead to Jesus. So it's interesting that when you take the four Gospels and put them side by side and look for the first occurrence of the word love in the Gospel of Matthew, you have God once again speaking from heaven of his love for his son 
at the baptism of Jesus Christ when God says, this is my Son, literally, the One who is loved. Go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse um, 20, I think it is. 111, rather. Same thing. Luke chapter 3, verse 17. Same thing. Three times God speaks from heaven about His love for His Son. But then you come to John's Gospel where Jesus is spoken of as the Son of God more times than in all the other Gospels put together and where the word love appears more times than in all the other Gospels put together. And where do you think the first occurrence of love is in John's Gospel? Where else could it be but John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. His only begotten Son. His monogenes Son. The same term that's used to describe Isaac in Genesis 22 is used to describe Jesus in John 3. Do you see the picture? Three times from heaven, God shouts forth His love from heaven for His Son, and yet He says that He loved us so much that He was willing to sacrifice His Son. That's love pictured in its meaning. It's a sacrifice. And as I said before, this is what transformed the Apostle John from a son of thunder into the Apostle of love, into the disciple whom Jesus loved because he never got over what Jesus Christ had done for him. He couldn't conceive of love. He couldn't talk about love. He couldn't talk, deal with it at all without going back to the Gospel. And so in verse 9 of 1 John chapter 4, we read, and this was manifested or was demonstrated the love of God toward us and that God sent His only Son into the world and that we might live through Him. When it comes to our, our salvation, God didn't just send another angel or another man to be our Savior. He sent the God-man, Jesus Christ. If you want to know what love is, if you want to know what love looks at, the first place is start by looking at Jesus Christ who is the love of God incarnate, but He didn't just come into the world. He didn't just show up here to show us and to tell us that we needed to love one another and to show us by His earthly life what that looked like, although He did both of those things in His earthly life and ministry. The real essence of it is in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation, very powerful word. I wish I had a whole sermon just on this. But it simply means to satisfy wrath. God is angry with the wicked every day. You and I are under the wrath of God before our conversion. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness is how the main sin section of the book of Romans begins in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. But then Paul transitions beginning at 321 of Romans, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all those who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has publicly displayed as a propitiation through faith in His blood. 
If sin brings the wrath of God upon us, whatever salvation God is going to provide in Christ has to satisfy the wrath of God. And that's why John uses this significant term. That Jesus satisfies and satisfied God's wrath. John had already talked about this earlier. 1 John 2.2 We know that He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, John, Jesus Himself had said, greater love has no man than this than a man what? Lay down His life for His friends. But do you and I realize, brothers and sisters, that Jesus went even beyond that? He didn't lay down His life for His friends. He laid down His life for His enemies. Romans 5.8, For when we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That's the ultimate demonstration of love. It's pictured in its meaning as a sacrifice. It's pictured in its manifestation in the Son of God, but it's also pictured in its mission to save us. It's almost like somebody asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And He says, I love you this much. And He stretched out His arms and He died for me. There's an old hymn. I don't hear it much anymore, but the chorus, I remember hearing it as a, as a young uh, younger man, and I just have never forgotten the, the, the chorus which goes, Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe only His great unfailing love made my Savior go. We'd earlier said that love, that the Gospel without love is no Gospel. Here John tells us that love without the Gospel is not really love. This is what it looks like. Love pictured in its mission to save us. G. Campbell Morgan says, we only come to the knowledge of love when we find it redeeming us at an infinite cost. And then finally, verse 11, the practice of love. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I can't close this sermon without telling you this story that comes down to us from church history of the Apostle John's very last sermon. After he was in exile on, on, on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation, John was allowed, now a man in his late 90s, the last of the living apostles, to come back to the city of Ephesus where he had spent the remaining 30 years or so of his life. He was now blind and could not see. He was infirm. He could not walk, so he had to be carried to church. And even in the process of doing that, the church always, out of deference to him, asked him to preach to them. And this story is the account of his very last sermon because they knew that his death was imminent. And so they carried the Apostle John up to sit in front of that church at Ephesus, and he looks out over that congregation of people that are weeping with sightless eyes, and John says, how dark it is. I cannot seem to see the faces of my flock. Is that the sea that murmurs so? Or is it weeping? Hush, my little children. God so loved the world he gave His only Son. So love one another. Love God. 
and love men. Those were the Apostle John's final words, his final sermon. And I suggest that no sermon ever preached has been more important. So, my brothers and sisters, love God and love one another.